0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is
1: dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Technology. What is it all about? No one knows
0: how much more we can increase lifespan of humans. If you look at maximum lifespan of humans right now is around 120, could you make everybody live to 120? I think there's nothing that I can think of that would say no, you can't.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. I want to talk about longevity. How long do you want to live? How long do you think you're going to live? Um, so I've done various deep dives on longevity in the past and we have, a, have just had a bunch of great guests here on here to talk about it. Laura Deming, who runs Longevity Fund. James Payer at Cambrian Biopharma, Ned David, Unity, the, the the list goes on. But one person who I had on once briefly as part of like a longer narrative thing I did years and years ago was Eric Verdon. And I wanted to have Eric back on. I've been wanting to have him on for, for years since then. Because he, Eric runs this place called the Buck Institute, which is one of the world's leading research organizations into the Science of Aging and Longevity. It's in Marin County, uh, just north of San Francisco. And anyone who has driven to wine country will have seen it. It's this very striking marble building perched at the top of this hill above the freeway. And the book is really interesting because it's really at the heart of of this push to turn longevity and aging research um, and kind of bring it in from the cold, if you will, scientifically, because the whole idea of studying aging itself as opposed to all the various ailments that it brings on like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, arthritis, etc. Those ailments have traditionally been the areas of scientific inquiry where all the money has gone, where drugs have been developed to treat procedures, etc. But the big shift that's happened over this recent years, say the past decade or two, slowly and now in recent years, more rapidly, is looking at aging itself as the target to aim at, as an affliction that can be dealt with. And the kind of the unlock there is that there's underlying genetic pathways that lead to all of those other horrible diseases of aging that I just mentioned. So in other words, if we aim at those genes that start to go haywire, then we can quickly get to a very interesting place of not looking at, not treating the symptoms as aging, but aging itself. And we can get to this future where, you know, maybe we start taking anti-old pills. A kind of a magic god pill that just gives us an extra however many years of healthy life. You know, all of a sudden aging doesn't suck anymore. It's a pretty um, kind of mind-bending concept, but there's a lot of movement toward that goal. And we're going to talk about that and really just look at what that might mean for how it kind of changes the world, how we think about life, death, society, even climate change, if we're all living a lot longer, really everything. And Eric is really just a great person to talk about this. He's a medical doctor, of course. He's really one of the leading authorities on all things aging and longevity research in this past month. I headed over to the Buck to talk with him about the present and future of aging and just how long it will be before we will have the world's first anti-aging pill on the market. There's a hint. It's closer than you think, but I will say no more. Anyhow, so here's my conversation with Eric Verdon, the president of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. and Joy. First of all, thank you for having me here. Good to see you, Danny. So can you just tell us first, very basically, where are we? What is the Buck Institute?
0: So we we are at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Uh, We are, for those of you familiar with the Bay Area, we are up on Route 101, coming out of Novato.
1: Up on this hill. Exactly.
0: Big, big building, looks almost like the Getty Museum in in LA, and actually our marble that Makes up our façade comes from the next valley over. So
1: oh wow, it's okay.
0: it's more than uh, it's more than just looking together.
1: And I was wondering if we could start, and you can tell me whether this is appropriate or not. I was looking around while I was waiting for you to come in at your desk. There's lots of interesting stuff on your desk.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah.
1: So we have a, a little Tupperware there next to it, looking like a nice bottle of wine, which you know, there's the great myths about wine and longevity. And I don't know if the, that would be metformin, that big bottle of pills there. I and mean, yeah, we can It is. It yes, yeah. I thought yes. it might. I thought it might be. <laughs> yes. So I hope we could. Um, and then you also have lots of Formula One stuff, which I'm also interested in. Really, which okay. is like, but that has nothing to do with longevity, unless you're driving, and maybe it'll, it could cut your life short, depending on how it goes. But
0: <laughs> no, that's that. I've heard that story before, but I, I I just don't buy into
1: it. Right, right, right. Well, that the bottle of pills. I think it's a good place to start because that's you know that's of interest to obviously everybody in this world so what is it so
0: it's uh it's metformin and i i take it and um uh it's one of the drugs that today has some of the strongest evidence of a potential role in terms of increasing human health span yeah and i think this comes mostly out of um uh, epidemiological studies that show that diabetics who are on metformin appear to be protected from a number of what we call the chronic disease of Because it is
1: a diabe- diabetes medication. Yes. it's. it's are just, you diabetic? No, I'm not diabetic. And that's right. really
0: what, that's the key distinct, distinction yeah. uh, in, in many respects, because all of these epidemiological studies showing that metformin appears to be protective against heart attack, against Alzheimer's, against type 2 diabetes have all been done in diabetics one of the the thing that came out out of these studies was actually quite surprising it was the data that diabetics on metformin live longer than non diabetics and right. that really sort of triggered a lot of interest could
1: could this and that was a, a study just so- if I remember correctly, that was a correlation, not necessarily a causation, but it was a it, kind of a strong correlation. Right?
0: It was an epidemiological study, right. so looking at a cohort of people and saying, "Well, it's, it looks like the people who are on metformin live longer." It's not a causation type of study in right. which you would do a blinded uh, clinical trials in uh, clinical trial in which you would randomize people to metformin or a placebo control right. and then follow them for a number of years. And we know correlation is not causation. And so, what is needed at this point is the idea is of conducting this trial. And actually, Nir Barzilai, a colleague at Albert Einstein, is planning a so-called TAME trial targeting aging with metformin that will test exactly this. And so, then you might wonder, well, why why am I taking metformin at this point? And and I think this is a obviously a difficult decision to make. It it's it's based in you know on your age. Uh, if you start this at thirty. That means you're going to have to take a drug for you know 30, 40 years uh, yeah. before really reaping the benefit. In my case, you know, I'm I'm 65, so I'm 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 not I'm, I'm not that young, and I my blood sugars are rising as they do in most mm. people while you age. I'm not diabetic. I'm not pre-diabetic. I'm right at the edge, and I felt uh, if this might give me a bit of an edge. Uh, what is the downside? And the downside in terms of metformin, is actually quite low. So uh, I've been taking it for now three years, and uh, I I find that that's a risk I'm willing to take.
1: And is it hard to find doctors who will prescribe it, kind of as a prophylactic, kind of off-label, basically? It might be initially, because
0: frankly, most doctors are not aware of the data, that has emerged on the science of metformin. What I have seen in a number of cases, friends will tell me, I've asked my doctor, but he won't prescribe it. And I said, well, just send him this review and this article and this article. And then becoming educated, they will actually change their mind.
1: Right, right, right. And we should have covered this right at the top, but can you just say like what your background is and how you ended up here?
0: Yes, so I'm originally from Belgium. I got an MD degree. Went to medical school with the desire to do biomedical research. So mm-hmm. I'm somewhat of an unusual person uh, in this respect. Uh, did two years of clinical training in internal medicine and, and diabetes and, and metabolism. And then decided, okay, now's the time to really live my dream of uh, of doing research. And uh, got a position to do a postdoc in, in the lab of Ron Kahn, who is... Um, at the Jocelyn Clinic in in Boston, with a world specialist on all issues related to metabolism and type two diabetes, and this is this is what I did with them. So got my training, and started my own lab. Ran my lab at multiple organizations across the country. Sort of a traditional uh, yeah. migrant a scientist, and uh, eventually ended up at the Gladstone Institute at UCSF, uh, where I was for twenty years, and working on a, on, a, on a family of proteins that were appear to be involved in the aging process. And so we came to this almost randomly. And so this family, this family of proteins are epigenetic modifiers. And the lab of Lenny Garante and colleagues in Boston actually discovered that these proteins, the sirtuins, uh, might be involved in the aging process. And so that really caused my lab to start really focusing on aging about 20 years ago, and, uh, which we did published a bunch of paper in the topic. And uh, eventually, I think I was approached by the leadership here at the Buck, by the board, uh, for the possibility of becoming the the leader. And so this is what I, I took this position in 2016. Uh, and um, I've been here now for almost six years. And the Buck, you know, was always... This shiny place on on the hill, and really one of the pioneers in terms of our research on the basic mechanism of aging. And I, one of the thing that really excited me about the job is this idea that we are, you know, the aging field, modern aging research as we know it, is about twenty years old, and yeah. and which means that we're getting close to a translation point where. We're going to be able to take all of this knowledge that's been accumulated in model systems and, and translate it into humans. And so, the the vision and the, the sort of <laughs> the big goal that we have is really to transform the buck uh, and add a really significant translational effort to it. That is, continue to do basic research the way we've been doing for 20 years, but add on to this really uh, what I'm just telling you about metformin. You know, can we really impact human? Aging and a healthy aging, what we call health span uh, in the future, based on the research and our understanding of aging.
1: And so, what is the origin of the Buck Institute itself? Like, where did the money come from? What was the original kind of mission statement, if you will?
0: Yeah. So, Beryl Buck uh, was a, a local woman from from Marin County who had what uh, was initially a relatively modest uh, fortune that she left. With the statement that it should help the aged in Marin. And so this eventually, this fortune grew to something quite significant, uh, it was incorporated into a, a big foundation, mm. Marin Community Foundation. Uh, here in Marin, with the goal of helping the aged, and so there was a lot of controversy initially in terms of what this would mean, right, uh, because right, a lot right. of people felt that Marin is already an affluent community. You know, why? Did, what would they need this type of support and so on? Eventually, Jack Rowe and, and a number of other people who were very vocal in the field of aging research came up with the idea: Why don't we create? a research institute that will be located in Marin. So Marin will benefit from it, but it will also benefit the whole world. And so in some way, this really transformed what was a problem, you know, to, to give such a large foundation to Marin, but to make it a tool for humanity. Right. And so we were founded in, in 1999. We have a, an initial endowment from the Buck Foundation, which is $150 million dollars that is with the marine community foundation Mm. and this endowment we get about five percent on this uh, every year so that's a few million dollars very small fraction so one of the myths actually which has been a problem for (laughs) us is is the idea that the buck is such a rich place they have a a beautiful imp building they you know marble walls and and a huge endowment from marine community foundation that's Endowment, which is for which we're very grateful, is about five to six million dollars a year out of an annual budget, which is about 65 million a year. So it's a very small fraction of our budget, it's very helpful, but we we rely on many other sources of of financing for for our activities. So if I can uh, sort of Eliminate this this misperception right. that we are loaded with money, um, and so <laughs> be it. Uh, we're always looking for supporters and for uh, ways uh, of accelerating
1: our mission. Well, I was looking on your whiteboard there, and I recognize a couple of those names. I won't say who they are necessarily, but tech names, big tech techie folks. And I've spoken to a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are very, you know, this kind of engineering mindset of like, you know, the machine is a body that we just need to understand better. I mean, sorry, the body is a machine. We need to understand better we can start to kind of, you know, that aging isn't necessarily this natural consequence that we have to accept, that it can be affected and even reversed, et cetera. We're here in the Bay Area. Is a lot of that extra 65 million coming from wealthy individuals like that?
0: So I think first to answer the, the first question, the engineering mindset hmm. for biology is is great because we are machines, yeah. uh, and exceedingly sophisticated, complicated machines. Yes. yes, And and we can come back to this later, which means that sometimes engineers have the tendency to to oversimplify the complexity. That being said, we are machines, and and we will alter the course of aging. In humans, I, I think mm. there,
1: there's no. We will. That's not a condition. You think that's no, absolutely going to happen. There's n-
0: but we've already done it. If you look at.
1: Well, if you think, yeah, right. I was talking to Nir Barsley last week, actually. Yes. And he was talking about, like, statins, for example. You know, I think it was statins and it was, I think, uh, it was blood pressure medicine and cholesterol medicine. And he said those two were, like, you know, responsible for, call it what you want, seven, eight, ten years of lifespan increase. Broadly for the population.
0: I completely agree. And if you look where we're coming from in 1850, our average lifespan was 38. We've almost doubled doubled the lifespan. It was 78 now ish. Yeah. Yeah. In the US, it's it's lower in the US than in many other Western countries. But is it going to continue continue to go? Yes. In Marin County, where we sit, life expectancy is 88. Really? Yes, which is remarkable. Now, wow. this is the longest lived county in the country. And you know, when you when you start looking into and we see the same type of heterogeneity. So we have actually some parts of the country where life expectancy is 68, so 20 year delta. Now, what is causing this? It's likely to be all of what we call uh, social determinants of yeah, health. Yeah, I
1: was going to we can get to that later, but the whole wealth poverty gap and what that means for life expectancy, I think is really interesting.
0: Very big, very big. I'd love to to continue yeah. the, the whole conversation yeah. on this. Um, now, in terms of the donors, and and as you mentioned, you know Silicon Valley sort of engineering mindset. I think is really something that is what we're doing. Mm. Uh, how fast we're going to get there? I, I I tell people, you know, look at Marin. There's we've already done a lot, and and I can guarantee you that in Marin not everybody is so-called optimized in terms of their lifestyle. And despite this, average life expectancy is 88. So I've, I've claimed that, you know, if we were to able to optimize everyone in terms of nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress, and so on, it's not a crazy idea to think that most most people could live to 95 in good health. That would be my prediction. and And that's already one first goal that right. we are working on. You know, I love the idea of Lifespan extension and, and us living to 150 and so on. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited by by this vision, but I think it should not detract us also by what we can do today. Right. And so there are two aspects to the aging research field. One is really focusing on what we can implement today. The other one is really these drugs and all of these interventions that we are working on in laboratory models that will come to to to, to humans in the future. And I think people tend to amalgamate the two together, you know, and, and I'm always a little bit skittish when I hear colleagues talking a, 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 about humans living to 150 because, frankly, we don't have any evidence that we're going to be able to do this now. It yeah. doesn't mean that it's not going to be possible, but let's, instead of, you know, talking about traveling at the speed of light, you know, we went to the moon first. And right. That, right, right, that's right, right. step one. And now next we're going to go to Mars. I think there's a lot of work that that can be done really to maximize our lifespan and our health span. And this is really what we are working
1: on. So you, you mentioned that the current kind of aging f- research field is roughly 20 years old. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what that means or why why is it 20 years old? Because obviously people have been getting old forever. <laughs> but I recall from, uh, we were talking before we started recording, of, you know, when I first started looking into this whole field five years ago, not long after I moved from London, there was a seemed to have been a big shift in talking about diabetes or Alzheimer's or heart disease or all these kind of quote-unquote diseases of aging as kind of symptoms of a deeper kind of misfiring or genetic malfunction within the body, i.e. aging itself is the condition that we should be focusing on, not the symptoms which end up killing you. Is that roughly accurate?
0: Absolutely. So two, two, two questions that you've asked me. One, yeah. First, what, what happened 20 or 30 years yes. ago, and second, yeah. the whole geroscience concept. Yes. And so I'll, I'll split them up. So going back to what happened uh, actually 30 years ago is Tom Johnson in Colorado, uh, Cynthia Kenyon at UCSF, and Lenny Garanti at MIT all identified mutations that increased lifespan.
1: In worms, in
0: worms, and 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 in in yeast, uh, in flies, and so on. And so, what this did is is really completely changed the way we think about aging. Because before this, aging was thought as sort of an entropy-driven process, where you know, imagine a huge wall made out of all of these bricks and it's aging and you can tell what's going to happen. Yep. A, a brick falls off. There's a little hole that hole itself allows the wind to go through it. It creates more turbulence. So soon you have more bricks falling off. You have a number of holes and then at the end, the whole thing collapses. Yeah. And so that was our vision of aging. Aging is, you know, Sort of accumulated damage in the whole body over by by gravity, by oxidative stress, by irradiation, by all of this, and there's essentially nothing you can do. Now imagine now you find one mutation, you you change a single letter in the nucleotide, in a nucleotide in the genome of an organism that has 100 million base pairs, and that doubles its lifespan. That how can you explain this? in the context of a model where aging is entropy driven random and n- non specific people had so that was mis-
1: kind of a light bulb moment for that you. that
0: was a light bulb moment yeah. you know people thought about mutation before this is mostly deleterious you have a mutation you have a disease in this case you have a mutation boom you live double as long now first people thought well these are exceptions it turns out what we've learned in the last 20 years, these genes that you can mutate to increase lifespan are not the exception. There's more than 600 of them in C. elegans. It means it's kind of easy to do. And we've done it again and again and again and again. Now, every time you identify a point mutation, you identify a target, a protein, um, a gene, and which means that if you can do it via a mutation, you probably can do it with a drug, or you could do it with another intervention. And so another thing that has emerged out of this is when you look at all the targets and try to make sense of them, they are actually organized in pathways. For example, think about insulin signaling. Insulin is a hormone that is in your, in your body that you use to utilize sugar as a form of energy. And it turns out when insulin binds to its receptor at the surface of the cell, it activates a whole series of cascades that eventually signals the whole cell it turns out the whole signaling pathway for insulin is actually made up of all targets that regulate aging i see and so and metformin is one of the one of its effect as an anti-diabetic drug is to actually incre- increase insulin sensitivity hmm. so this really led to a complete change about our understanding of aging that it is regulated that there are pathways that regulate aging And many of these pathways, frankly, are actually linked to repair. So because there's two aspects of aging. One is the damage that we cannot control. Uh, There's always going to be gravity. There's always going to be radiation, oxidative stress, all of these. But there's also the reaction of your body to those and the repair mechanism. And so I think about the brick wall and, and the analogy there is, you know, the whole thing falling apart slowly. What people did not realize, there are masons crews that are every night go and repair everything so every every time there's a little hole someone comes back and fills it up and so by these repair mechanism that allows us basically to fight aging and so the field of aging has moved to the idea that we need to understand these repair pathways we need to activate them and and hopefully this
1: typically will, via drugs
0: via drugs but also you know the best anti-aging medicine that we have today is exercise And so the key question is, we know this from studies, people who exercise regularly live longer, actually by close to 10 years, which is pretty remarkable. What's
1: regular exercise? Uh,
0: So now this is where there's a need for a lot more research. What exercise? You know, there are multiple forms of exercise, endurance, you know, anaerobic strength training, balance, uh, flexibility training, all of this I've argued that we still don't really fully understand which is the best combination of all these forms of exercise that will lead to the maximum longevity. Personally, I, I try to do a little bit of everything because I don't know, yeah. and <laughs> and I and I've you know the idea if you want to be really globally fit is you know combine strength and endurance and flexibility and 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 so on. So, I guess I sort of lost my train of track where I was no. going with all this.
1: Um, <laughs> So, where I was asking um, to kind of modify those those pathways via drugs, in particular, and that you said exercise yeah. is the one thing we know about yeah I thus mean, far
0: clearly drugs are going to have a place in in the armamentarium of you know fighting aging, but we're not there yet, and this is what. You know, even though metformin, I take it, it's a bit of a gamble, frankly, where, you know, if you were to come to see me and say I'm 40 years old and I'm exercising every day and, I, and I'm fit and, and should I take metformin, I probably would argue no. Yeah. It's a very different situation if you're 65 and your blood sugar is right at the limit. So it's, it's a difficult decision, um, but one should consider all of the potential effects. There are no drugs without side effects people have arg- argued, well, I should take it even though I'm 40. I said, well, uh, maybe you should look at also at your testosterone level. There's a study recently that showed that men on on testosterone, younger men on testosterone seems to have sperm defects. So again, I wasn't surprised because this is what drugs do. They have primary effect, but they have secondary effects. And so We have to be careful in terms of what we recommend as a field. This is why in some way I'm always skittish about recommending, you know, that you should do this or that. I'm I'm not in that position of authority. This is something for people to decide with their doctor. Uh, The good news is that the research is ongoing on what drugs could be increasing lifespan. There's rapamycin is another one that people talk a, a, a lot about. But that should not obscure the fact that there are many things that you can do right now yeah. uh, that do not involve a But drug. these
1: are these are like the kind of let's call it old school. Yes, it's just like what you what you grow up hearing like exercise. Yes, eat healthy, don't drink too much, yes. don't yes. eat too much, like
0: don't smoke. Yeah, don't smoke. And, and don't be stressed and sleep. Here's where the field of aging is bringing a new dimension: is that we're studying those things actively. Mm. Because it's not enough to say, go exercise. What form of exercise? What's the minimum
1: unit? And if you can kind of quantify these things in a way that's not quantified now. Exactly.
0: For example... There's this recommendation that you should be walking 10,000 steps every day.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, the, I, the Apple Watch phenomenon. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, I know a lot of people who, who will tell me, well, I, oh, I got
1: to get my steps. I'm I got to get 000. my yeah, steps yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I, so we, we looked into it. Why 10,000? Where's that? That number sounds already almost too rounded. And yeah. when I, when actually you try to walk 10,000 steps, it's close to an hour every day which actually discourages people. People will say, well, I can't walk my 10,000 steps, so I won't walk at all, period. <laughs> and it turns out someone did a study looking at the number of steps that people were taking and, and actually look at the mortality. Hmm. It turns out most of the gains is in the first 5,000 steps that you take. You know, you keep getting more and more if yeah, you walk yeah, more. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And I, I've argued, you know, if you can walk 25 minutes a day, which is already not one hour, and uh, you're going to reap a lot of benefits
1: this is great because my wife takes a half hour walk every morning
0: i would argue that should be part of everyone's right. uh, daily routine uh if you don't have a dog I mean, if you have a dog it's very easy you just yeah. take it out uh, if not and you get early morning light which is also excellent for your circadian rhythm just no? to be exposed to outside light and 30 minutes of walking you know is right. is, is a recipe for for good health
1: so we started down this path of you know the the change that happened 20 30 years ago so there was this foundational research but then obviously the gears of science grind slowly so here we are in 2022 where have we got to now because it does feel like you mentioned the term earlier geroscience that feels like a relatively new thing right that i imagine if you had said that 20 years ago people be like what is that what are you talking about you're kind of weird
0: Good. It, it's a 10-year it's a concept. It came out of the buck. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Uh, Gordon Lithgow, who's one of our faculty members, was one of the first ones to actually notice this. Um, and this was the idea that aging is the biggest risk factor for all of the chronic disease of aging. So we go back, Alzheimer's, heart attacks, stroke, uh, osteoporosis, macular degeneration... The list goes on and on, what, what we are seeing across the, the aging yeah. population right now. It turns out aging is the biggest risk factor for all of those. Now, you can say, well, <laughs>
1: you, get, you, get, you get old, yeah, you get yeah, sick. Yeah, yeah. So
0: that's, you know, it's like Newton seeing an apple fall from the tree. Like,
1: oh, gravity. He, cool. he's, he was not the yeah. first one
0: to notice that apple yes. fell from trees. He was the first one to say, why is that? And so the question that, you know, the buck has really been leading is, okay, aging is associated with disease why is that and does it have to be and the answers are it doesn't have to be and the mechanism by
1: which we get sick and we have got to that point
0: we are at that point and a good example because that
1: feels like most people if you asked 10 people on the street nobody would kind of think that, that was a logical statement
0: no, and it's a new concept. It was listed. It was published as a, a landmark paper called the, the geroscience hypothesis. Uh, it's been embraced by the NIH, National Institutes of Health. Okay. Uh, uh, Felipe Sierra, who is uh, uh, head of uh, aging biology at the National Institute of Aging, embraced it and sold it across the campus. And they actually, we're getting funding from this geroscience initiative, which. Really recognizes aging as an institute, NIH institute-wide uh, goal. Because remember also that medicine, the way it is organized right now, is is based on a model that dates back to the 1700s. So anatomical model. You have a, a National Institute of Heart Disease. You have a yep. National Institute of Brain Disorders, and so. And and what we're saying is, this is all irrelevant. You know, to be organized in such a manner, we should be organized based on. On, on pathways, molecular pathways, which right. have been identified in the last 30 years, for example. Incident... Because all
1: those di- those diseases of aging can be traced back to the same, same kind of pathways.
0: Exactly. Right. And so the idea is that when we understand aging, aging is the biggest risk factor. So the pathways that regulate aging also regulate the occurrence of all these diseases. Now, the beauty of this approach is that if you're targeting an aging pathway, you're not only going to prevent the occurrence of a heart attack you're also going to prevent the occurrence of Alzheimer's disease and cancer and so on right. so it, it really is changes our our, our thinking about medicine and how, how to practice it in a way that's much more sort of based on, on our under- current understanding of biology and this is what the geroscience hypothesis or, or initiative is trying to do is to identify these pathways of aging and target them and so the idea is that you will take a pill like metformin that will prevent not only cancer, diabetes, all of these diseases. So a magic together. pill. Yes, a magic pill. And I think, um, you know, I have some colleagues who tells me this is sort of a pipe dream. This is a bit crazy, but uh, the evidence in animal models really points to the fact that it can be it can be done. Now, I'll give you another example. Everyone knows about the statins. Mm-hmm. We, we talked about this, uh, so incredible improvement you know lowers your cholesterol
1: and increasingly they're becoming like like again prophylactic like they're just being prescribed to kind of if you're over 40 basically people are like start getting on statins because it just helps you live longer and be healthy
0: some people have argued you know we should put it in the drinking water it's a bit like uh, you know baby aspirin a lot of people are taking this for prevention of heart disease now your cholesterol level as a is a risk factor for heart disease that's clear and the whole statin field is based on this. But it turns out, if you look at what is your risk of having a heart attack, is cholesterol the best predictor? It's not. Actually, your age is seven times more important. Seven times. Oh, interesting. As you think about, you know, statins is a $20 billion market in terms of the drugs that are being sold. And now we have another risk factor, which is seven times more important, and we're not targeting it. So this is this is where what the field right. now and the beauty if if you target you prevent a heart attack with metformin, it's also going to prevent the next disease. You know people have have argued that you know we should cure cancer. Again, many forms of cancer are linked to aging in a direct way, and and everybody thinks okay, well if we were to cure cancer, you know the world would change. Turns out that if you were to cure cancer tomorrow, life expectancy would increase by two point five years. 2.5 years. I don't think there's anybody who would say... We "Well,
1: cure cancer.
0: Yes. We eliminate cancer tomorrow. We will live, on average, 2.5 years. That more.
1: feels v- underwhelming.
0: <laughs> exactly. Why? And so you can also ask, why is this? Because you've cured cancer. Well, you live two and a half years longer. Well, your risk of heart disease and Alzheimer's, and all of this keeps going up exponentially. Oh, right, so right, 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 if right, you're, right. So curing
1: one of these diseases... Something else is going to kill you pretty quickly. Exactly. Right. And
0: so in some way, this really calls for us to look at the way we're thinking about preventative medicine. We have to get to the root cause of all of these diseases, and that's aging.
1: Right. The train is now approaching. Duction at platform. Passengers airport please stay on board next stop road station ios helps you control which apps you share your exact location with there's more to iphone when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months, plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, can we do like uh, scenarios, like five years, ten years, fifteen years from now? And this uh, going back to this idea, of, I'm. The magic pill doesn't feel five years away, maybe it's not even fifteen years away. But like how do you see this playing out? Because you're on this cold face going forward, and I'll just use the the Metformin trial as an example. When I wrote about this stuff five years ago, they had it's seventy million dollars for I think thirty five hundred patients. They had half of it committed from one guy, Adam Newman, who it turns out. Yes. Um things did not go so great for Adam Newman. Yeah. We work, etc. So he's now disappeared. Now they apparently have replaced him with a new rich guy yes. or lady, but they still need to raise the thirty-five million. And then just looking at those names on the board here, you're like, if the wealthy of the world are seem to be really interested in this, especially around here, why is it even that, which seems like low-hanging fruit, especially as there's already some pretty strong science pointing to this being a you know a big factor. Why is this so hard? <laughs> yes. Um, because it feels like 35 million for pick-your-billionaire is like, you know, it was nothing.
0: Yeah. My prediction is that it will get done. Last conversation I've had with Nir Barzilai is that he's going to get the funding without getting into the detail. Yeah, yeah. Who's going to give it? He's going to get the funding. I think metformin is a really unique aspect and a unique molecule in many respects. One is our field... Has suffered somewhat by this perception that this is medicine by the rich for the rich. Yes, and that you know, and it's been compounded by the fact that some of the people who are supporting this field are would be Sergey Brin and Jeff Bezos and and Peter Thiel and Mark Zuckerberg and, and so on. So I think there's nothing unique about this. Medical research has always been funded by the affluent at the time. I mean, if you go back in time, it's the the, the Rockefellers. So there's nothing new about this. It just turns out that the epicenter of aging research is in the Bay Area. And this is also the epicenter of biotech and high tech. And so there's no sort of giant conspiracy about the rich wanting to live forever. They are the the donors at, at this point. And I think they should be encouraged. I'm always sort of bristling at the idea of perception of our field. Now metformin is a really good example of why our field is not buy the rich for the rich. and the reason why it's been so hard to fund it is uh, there's no money in
1: metformin because it's already generic. It's, it's already, already generic.
0: Span. it costs 28 cents a day. So you know the first I predict that the first medicine that our field is going to put on the market that will increase lifespan will be one in which nobody's making a single dollar. And in some way, that has been both a curse and a blessing. It's a blessing because it clearly. Because it'll probably
1: be metformin.
0: Yeah, it will will be. I predict it will be metformin. It's a blessing because it will clearly demonstrate that this is not just about money, but it's a curse also because when there are no economic incentives in in any biotech or any human enterprise, it's very hard to, to fundraise right so i think you know if i had to make a prediction in the next five to ten years i would yeah I would. let's
1: say five years from now 2027
0: yeah five years from now is a little harder uh, yeah there are a lot of things that are in clinical trials a lot of companies that are pushing novel supplement novel drugs and so on
1: targeting one of these hallmarks of aging yes of, if we go back five years to 2017 would you have been saying the same thing or is that like is that itself progress That you have a bunch of actual clinical trials for aging related or you know some things that are targeting aging specifically
0: it's huge progress so the transition i've talked about that we want to do at the back and i think uh, i mean frankly we're not the only one there are other people who want to do this as well this idea of we have to take this basic research of aging and transform it into an engine a translational engine for clinical applications and really bring this to humans this started 10 years ago, The you know, in terms of thinking. The rate at which companies are being created and the amount of money that's coming into the field right now is actually our additional indications that we're not the only ones yeah. thinking that this is going to happen. So number of venture funds that have been created just in the last three or four years enormous. So we're seeing a massive investment. So we're seeing, you know, when I... When I took the job here at the back i was told by some colleagues i was crazy you know why would you leave a place because it was
1: still kind of seen as like this thing over here in terms of medicine science research it's like
0: on the margins. Yeah. You know, and in some way, you know, with the problem perception that some people, you know, talking about a, a thousand year lifespan and, 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 and such nonsense, just like, you know, crazy futuristic.
1: Yeah. Egypt, you know. People trying to credibly say we can live forever. There's no yeah. reason why. Or can.
0: immortality is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that's, you know, that we, yes. re- we entered a realm of, of, of you know, Whatever uh, yeah. whatever you want to call this, but it has nothing to do with science. So we, we don't talk about immortality, we talk about increasing health span and lifespan uh, because quite often the two go together. And implementing these changes today, not just mm. waiting for a magical pill that's going to happen in 50 years. So I think you know, the first thing is no one knows how fast and how far we're going to be able to, to go, but all of the science point in the right direction. There's massive investment, lots of interest in the field. And the science clearly is accelerating. So I would predict, and I don't think I'm taking a chance, that within the next 10 years, we'll have the first approved drug that delays aging in humans in the clinic. You know, five years is a little harder to say because, you know, there are multiple phases and uh, and we don't know where the field is going to go. But within the next 10 years, I'm, I'm, I'm really fairly comfortable. And I think once this happens, I think this will be opening the floodgate.
1: When you say, because I think it's really important that we drill in on that one point of delaying aging and this idea of of health health span versus lifespan because most people when they think about getting old really old it's like that just looks like it sucks this is just life is hard and your body is breaking down it's a question of like how long can you kind of enjoy life before it all breaks down but so when you talk about delaying aging what does that look like in terms of what you see and what you guys are working on
0: you're making a really great point robin probably remembers the first time i one of the first times i gave a big audience type of talk about what we were trying to do i started my my lecture by asking who wants to live to 150 and i was expecting the whole audience to sort of raise it was like
1: that sounds terrible
0: and actually yeah. no one did and yeah. and it was i was really taken aback because i thought Oh, geez, I just took this job. No one wants what we're trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? And, yeah. and right on the spot, it just it seemed obvious that, well, I rephrased the question. So who wants to live to 150 in the same state that you are when at age 55, surrounded by your family, having your current job, and, and then the whole audience just ra- right. raised their hand? So we associate justifiably so the process of aging with illness incapacitation, decline, functional decline, mental decline, and so on. So I think it's clear that that's the first target. Can we age better? We age very poorly right now. I mean, it turns out if you're 65, or my my age, 80% of people have one chronic disease of aging. Already one. Already one. Uh, And by the time you reach 70, it's two. And in some way, it really colors the, the way we perceive aging. Aging is not something to look forward to. Uh, now, if you look at what can be done, we talked about Marin County, average yeah. life expectancy 87. I, I have a lot of friends and who live around us who are in their 80s and they're vibrant, they're bicycling, they're running, they're active. And so if you look also at centenarians, you know, they live to hundred. They spent... I told you how most of us, by the time we're 65...
1: Have one disease of aging.
0: Have one disease of aging. We die around 80, so that was 15, 15 years.
1: We're dealing of, with something that's Dealing with something.
0: And we've all seen this in our yeah. friends and families, yeah. parents, grandparents. And so it's really very vibrant for most of us. Yeah. Now, centenarians, they not only live to 100, but they spend only five years on average...
1: Dealing afflicted with that
0: by that stuff but dealing with all that stuff. So a, right. a true centen I mean a, an average centenarian and of course you know some people are going to say well I know one person yeah, who, yeah, yeah. but on average 95 year health span then, until 95 many of them actually are in great shape. So if you look at the delta it's 65 to 95 there's a 30 year delta which is way bigger than the 20-year delta in life expectancy. So this gives me great hope that if they can do it, we can find ways. Yeah, because if
1: you're talking about that 30-year delta and there's already humans doing that just by living their lives, I imagine there's a lot of interventions, going back to those layer of those hallmarks of aging that go like kind of one level above the diseases that we all know. Yes. If you target those, and theoretically we could all become centenarians. Yes. Or like kind of that's the goal. You know, you get to 95 and it's like you're old, but you're
0: good. I'm ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. And yeah, it turns out, you know, half of the children who are born today are predicted to be centenarians anyway based on the on the on the demographic curve. You know, this line that increases. Really? Our Moore's law, for example, I mean what we call, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. our Moore's law in terms of longevity means that every 10 years we gain 2 years of lifespan, life expectancy. So, project another 100 years there'll be another 20 years of life expectancy and this is you know to me that the question is we're going to live longer we already live way longer than our parents the question is what kind of life are we going to be getting
1: we're saying before we start recording i had james payer from cambrian um biopharma on six eight months ago i can't remember and his he had a really interesting perspective which i haven't thought about before which was I can't remember how far back you went, but, you know, dying of old age is a relatively new thing in that in the last hundred years, we've, you know, invented things like penicillin and antibiotics and vaccines, and which kind of have taken out all of these other major sources of death and suffering. So now we're getting to this next bit, which is just like, oh, now your body's just getting older than you were genetically perhaps designed, like your body didn't care because you just wanted to get to a certain, you know, past that other stuff. Did that ring true with you?
0: Yeah, it rings completely true. In some, in some way, it speaks to even a, a bigger question is, you know, why do we age? And one reason why we age is, frankly, from an evolutionary point of view, your body doesn't care whether you're aging or not. Because once you've passed the reproductive time, uh, there's no more pressure on your genes to maintain you in good shape. Although there's a little bit, it could be a little bit for you to function as a grandparent. But uh, in general, the process of aging is thought to be sort of a, an evolutionary process that once you've reproduced and your your genes have been passed on, your genes and your children don't really care whether you're living you know, to 80 or 90. In some way, this degradation that we're seeing happen is a reflection of this. The question is, we also know some animals that live much longer than others. The question is, how are they doing it? Can we actually learn from them? Can we activate these repair mechanisms and so on? This is this is where we're going with this field.
1: So there's the science. Let's so say 10 years from now, I'm 45, so in 10 years, I'll be 55. So the magic pill should be like right in my wheelhouse yes. of getting old. Yes. Do you have any sense of like, I mean, obviously, this is complete shot in the dark, so we don't know what that pill is, but like how much more lifespan are we talking about for something like that? And then as we move further out, again, clinical trials can take, you know, five, 10 years. Are there things you're saying like, wow, if that works, then we're talking about a decade or 15 years, or, you know, what does that look like as we kind of move out beyond?
0: Uh, I mean, the answer is, it's, I do not know. It's very hard to, but I can, I can give you some arguments of, of some facts that actually will help you. One thing, the lower the animal model, like the C. elegance, little worm the lives little 20 worms, days, yeah. Yeah. we can increase its lifespan by tenfold.
1: 100 days, 200. Oh, sorry, 20, 20 days. 200. to Right, right, right. So right. remarkable.
0: Wow. I mean, this is the type of data I just sent people for a mental spin in terms of like, how, how could this be? Where was this life locked into the worm that you could actually all of a sudden, you know, increase its life by by tenfold? Now, What we've seen is is if you move up the evolutionary tree, the more complex the organism, if you go in fruit fly, it's a little shorter. If you go in mice, we can double their lifespan still, but we're a lot more complicated than mice. Now, no one knows how much more we can increase lifespan of humans. If you look at maximum lifespan of humans right now is around 120 could you make everybody live to 120? I think there's nothing that I can think of that would say, no, you can't. Right. So above 120 is going to call for something different, clearly, than the interventions that we're thinking about. Then
1: which, it's the, the body is the car where you just replace the parts as exactly. they break down.
0: Yeah, so there's, there's the whole field of regenerative medicine where we're not only going to hopefully optimize your aging slow down the rate at which you're aging but we're also going to have in our toolbox a whole series of ways to you know repair what was broken let's say you you still end up with a heart attack despite the fact that you were aging well well you know can we actually regenerate your heart to eliminate the scar? Lots of evidence that you can actually do this in animal models. So same thing for the brain, same thing for muscle. So there's there's there are two big, broad directions that this field is working on. One is to slow down the rate of aging. And the other one is, um, a new one, is actually to reverse aging uh, using interventions. And the third one is the idea of actually repairing, just uh, fixing, like, you know if you've lost a function to bring it back rejuvenation right right. and i think you know it's hard to say which one of of these are going to be dominant in in the field i would predict that slowing down aging is is probably going to be more powerful than repairing it's always more complicated to repair something than it is to slow it to slow it down
1: right 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 and how holistic is your approach because also there's there's you mentioned marin average age or life expectancy 88 which is very long i hadn't realized it was that long are there any studies like what's happening there is it just it's a really nice place by the water and gets lots of sunshine and people are also wealthy he <laughs> you knows that all of those things and like that idea around poverty you know some places you said in this is it in the states have 68 is their life expectancy yeah. i mean that's dramatic
0: it's dramatic you see the same thing within cities Mm. I believe it's Glasgow. People have done the studies, or and I believe there was another study in Chicago. If you go from the different zip codes, actually the strongest predictor of your lifespan is your zip code, more than any other biological test that you can do. That's the strongest predictor of your lifespan is your zip code. Really? Yes, which is a, a really, again, an indication of uh, what we call the social determinants of yeah. health. And this is something I I am passionate about because I think, of course, we want to push the envelope as a research institute, we want to work at the cutting edge, but we also have a whole country. And I think if we want to you know, not be perceived as, as the people who are really focusing on the, on the top 1% and yeah. make them live longer, uh, we can do an incredible amount of good uh, for the population at, at, at large. And if you think about what's happening in the country, the population is aging, it's getting more and more sick, which means... Our per capita spending in terms of healthcare and all this keeps increasing, you know. I mean, it could be we're going to get to a breaking point where people are going to have to make some decisions. Can we actually, what can we treat at what age? Yeah. And we're already making some of these decisions. So our system is, is tuned in a way that is not conducive to the best outcome for anybody, except maybe for the, you know, Health insurance companies would keep charging more and spending more. And so it's a system that needs a revamping to think, okay, how do we actually before, you know, medicine is incredibly good at treating people who are ill. Yeah, it's not good at preventing them from getting there at the same at the first place. And obviously, some of these issues are bigger than what the buck can solve. There are societal issues. You know, how do we how do we spend our, our dollars, our healthcare dollars? Do we we spend right now almost half of all of our healthcare dollars in the last year of life?
1: I knew it was a lot. I didn't realize it was that extreme. It's a, it's
0: a, it's a, it's a horrendous number because yeah. it's essentially we just throw everything at when someone has a problem, and, and when it's someone in your family. I mean, I've I've been there. You want to do everything totally, to, but but when you look at the economics of it; it's it hardly makes any sense because at the same time we still have a lot of children who are not getting vaccinated. We have. A lot of a lot of things that like, you know, nutrition programs that are not in place. We have our public health uh, uh, in the U.S. in disarray. and This is why we're dealing with this pandemic. The poor way we're dealing with this, We've been disinvesting in public health for the last fifty years. We have countries that are way less rich than us, who are spending you know a tenth of what we're spending, who have longer health span and lifespan. And why? Because with limited resources, they make different decisions. They focus on the health of the mother when the, you know, because we know health for your whole life starts in the womb. And so investing in mother nutrition, investing in, you know, uh, pollution in in the environment where you live. Um, So all of these things, the social determinants of health are incredibly important. And I, you know, we're launching a new effort, which is what we call the exposome,
1: uh, which the is exposome
0: exposome, which is uh, the collection of all the chemical environment in which you live. So you know the air you breathe, uh, we know it has a dramatic effect on your life
1: expectancy. Yeah, because climate change has got to be a huge part of yes, this as well, right? Yes, uh,
0: we have more and more smoke. The food you eat, uh, we know, you know why. Our people in, in higher zip codes living longer. Well, it turns out if you live in an impoverished area, there's likely no supermarket with yeah. vegetables. Yeah. So it's not even that, you know, you're not eating your vegetables. They're not there. So this exposome is we know now how to quantify what you're eating. We can we can measure your exposure to all kinds of beneficial nutrients that are present in salads in, in in vegetables and so on. So think about this collection of chemical environment in which we live eventually is going to be determining your your health span and your lifespan and the problem is that it has not been quantified and so we have this this large project that we are in the process of of putting together and looking for funding is going to try to define what are the critical determinants of all. We know, for example, if you also, another exa- example that I think your listeners will probably um, identify with is if, you, if you're impoverished and you're living in an old dilapidated building yeah. uh, with lead in the, in, in the paint, uh, you're going to be exposed to lead. And it's a huge effect on brain function and longevity as well. So think about all of these things added all together, create this full picture. And and the bill at the end is how long you're going to live and how healthy. So Right, right, um, right, right. I think, you know, we identify, we know a lot of these variables, but we, we don't know if as an organization, we could uh, go see a politician and say, this is the one that we have to focus. Because right now they're all thrown together and everybody throws up their arms in the sky saying well it's too complicated we can't solve it this is a politician's problem Uh, i think what we we need to understand better is which one of these are actually really the critical determinants and Mm. and we know some of them are going to be more important than others so let's focus on these two or three variables that we can
1: we can change uh, and that study is about figuring out what those variables are exactly
0: and so this how do you get there through the scientific methods, you have a number of hypotheses. You test them. You identify the key one. Then you make an intervention, and then you you, just, you go one step at a time. So I think we have. Uh, I would love for your your audience to think of the back as an organization that is focused on on both aspects. The cutting edge. We want to
1: the magic pill. The magic and also pill. But also yeah.
0: really, let's think very deeply of how, as, as an organization, as a field of research, we are carrying the population at large in terms of improving its health
1: right 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 and then just finally going back to that idea of kind of future scaping and i understand especially in science and research it's like a mugs game trying to predict the future but knowing what we know now in terms of just these pathways these hallmarks of aging do you think it's realistic you know because i was listening to um david sinclair of harvard you know he he has he's pretty out there in terms of what he says but like he's just basically there's no reason we need to age You can kind of maybe live for hundreds of years or whatever but do you think you get to the point where either you kind of just stop aging in its tracks largely till you get to 150 or something or even what he and others are talking about like that idea of reversal of actually trying to kind of you know this idea of like my chronological age is Seventy, but now I'm fifty-five because I have all these interventions, and you know that's how my body internally is functioning. Yeah, so I think
0: David is a good friend, and he speaks mostly about the second aspect. So the the that we talked about, which is how far can we go? Yeah, what can we do? And I I think we are working on age reversal here as well. Uh, on some of the very similar studies that David is doing, so this whole idea of epigenetic aging and reversal, and and we also have evidence that you can reverse aging, and so I, I I'm ex- extremely excited by this. I mean, the caveat is that these studies have been done in mice, and they're only based on on markers. We haven't seen a mouse actually living longer yet. So right. the idea that you can reprogram cells to make them epigenetically younger. I think it's real. And uh, this new company called Altos that was just founded is going to be focusing on this. I think there's still a great need for academic research to be uh, focusing on this as well. And it's the latest thing in the, the, you know, it's the hardest topic right now in aging research. Can we revert aging? And I think the limitations to this is, at least in some of the early studies, when they reverted aging using these types of approach, they saw the appearance of tumors. And again, you know, this is such a new field. Yeah. We don't know this is going to be a problem. We're going to be able to go around. But I would encourage your, your audience just to take all of this with a grain of salt. There's incredible optimism and excitement about the new discoveries, but we're certainly at, for these discoveries, they're quite a long way away from, from, from the clinic. I would predict. Probably at least ten years before we see even even the beginning of a clinical trial of one of these interventions. What I suspect will happen is they will be used to induce regeneration in unique organs or tissues. And, and this is actually what we're working on. We we're taking this knowledge and this technology to rejuvenate blood cells. Why? Because we can actually do, take those very easily out of a living person. Uh, we can rejuvenate them, and you could actually reinfuse them. Right. Which is very different from your liver. You know, you cannot. if you have to rejuvenate the, the liver, well, that's going to be a whole other problem. And rejuvenate the whole organism is going to be a lot lot more complicated. So the science is incredibly exciting. I believe there's a true component of aging that can be reverted. Implementing this in terms of the level of a whole human is, is another story, which we need more work and uh, we need more support and
1: we you know which is which is happening right now and then just to kind of wrap it up this idea of the longevity dividend I don't know if you guys have looked into that it's kind of an interesting concept you know if the idea is that all of a sudden you know we're living till 95 and we're mostly healthy and we can be productive and do stuff instead of to your point being this kind of being that is just being cared for on a rapid slope downward Um, And also, have you guys looked into kind of what this would mean more broadly for society? Are there like dystopic elements we should be thinking about now when we think about, you know, dramatically increasing lifespan in a short amount of time and, you know, how that's distributed, what that looks like, et cetera?
0: So the first first question, longevity dividend, that's a concept I think that was advanced by Jay Olshansky, who is a... So an economist who actually yeah. wrote about what would it mean? Let's say if we were to increase the health span, you know, people staying healthy for a number of years, what would be the benefit to society? And it's it's amazing.
1: It's dramatic, right? It's when like you look tens, of, hundreds of trillions of dollars. Yes, or something, it,
0: yeah. it is amazing. Even like an increase in health span of two years is just beyond what we can uh, comprehend. And I think it will it will happen simply out of necessity and out of what we've just talked about. So it's some way. If you look at the, the opposite trajectories that we keep getting older and sicker, uh, it's going to bankrupt Social Security, Medicare. All of these things are not going to be sustainable. So in some way, the longevity dividend is going to be the saving grace for yeah. all of these social safety nets. And I think that, that's wonderful. So I, I predict it will happen. Now, the dystopian aspect of, of our work I think it's quite often raised by people who do not understand what we're doing and do not understand the rate at which these changes are going to happen. I think there is no evidence right now that we're going to see a dramatic acceleration of longevity in the next 5, 10, frankly, 20 years.
1: We're talking a few years.
0: Yeah, I I, I favored the end. So I don't think there's any evidence, and I, I'll challenge anybody who wants to debate me, that all of a sudden we're going to have an intervention that increases lifespan by 20 years tomorrow or even in five years. What will most likely happen... Actually, frankly, when you look at human life expectancy in the U.S., it's been decreasing for the last two years.
1: Because, because of COVID. COVID.
0: Right? And so, you know, you never know what's going to happen. We're, we're still at the mercy of, of of all these viruses. And the picture that's emerging in terms of the net effect of globalization on pandemic is is not bright. And if you look just in the last 40 years, we've had HIV, you know, uh, Tens of millions of deaths. We've had, uh, you know, SARS. Uh, we have MERS. We have SARS you know, CoV two. Now we have monkeypox, and it just. And I, I think people should understand that this is these are not exceptions. It's becoming the rule. And the more globalized the world is, the more we're going to have those. Hence, the need for investing in public health, which is, which we're not doing. Now. So I don't really. I'm not worried about the dystopian idea that people are going to live all of a sudden so long, and you know it's going to strain the the, the world ecology and economy and so on. I think what I what I see happening is a progress is a progressive increase. It would be amazing if we continued every year, every decade, to increase lifespan by two to three years. If you think about it um you know right now we're doing two years but it could become three you could become four yeah so imagine 50 years from now we'll live another 20 years longer that means everybody will be a centenarian and mm. and so and then you know 20 years from now biology will have changed in a way that none of us can actually comprehend and this is why i there's a part of me that's still very excited about the future in the way that I, i'll join david and and say some crazy stuff, say, we're yeah. all going to live to 150, <laughs> because frankly, I mean, we have to be humble in terms of our lack of understanding. If you had told me when I was, you know, 40, that I would be walking around with a supercomputer in my pocket and be making calls, video calls from all over the world and having yeah. all of my music, all of my videos, everything portable at any given time, plus a, an encyclopedia across the whole world, I, I would have told you, you're crazy. Uh, and anybody would have told you you're crazy. So I think this is where the true excitement comes. What lies in store? What I find incredibly satisfying and, and fortunate to be in this job at this time is biology is undergoing an amazing revolution in terms of the tools that we we have at our disposal, uh, the speed at which we can deploy them. So there is going to be an acceleration, and we. And some people will say, well, there's a clearly an acceleration. But the problems are also getting harder and harder to fix. So I think if you look at the two combined, I would say for me, as a goal for our field, if we can keep increasing lifespan by three years every decade, that would be remarkable. And that means, you know, 50 years from now, we'll we'll all expect a a 100-year healthy life. And then another 50 years, God knows what will happen. Uh, Right, right, right. But the future is bright. And we are incredibly fortunate to live at a time where we actually we're taking control of 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 our destiny of one of the variables that has has been you know look at human history and look at uh, uh, the writing of of uh, novelists and who you know painters everyone has been fascinated by aging the aging process and for the first time in the last 20 years we're tackling it and i think if i have to say something at the end is you know the future is incredibly bright, but no one can predict it. So we'll see. And we'll just keep working, chipping, chipping away at it and hopefully, you know, uh, increasing our lifespan and health span.
1: And I know I keep saying this is the last one, but you just mentioned something that jogged a question, which was you talked about the tools. Yes. Are there any things technologically or scientifically that have kind of unlocked this new era? Because you have one side, you have like this whole emergence of geroscience as a research area. What are the tools that are allowing you to kind of tackle that in a way that you probably maybe couldn't have even 5, 10 years ago?
0: There are so many. It's hard to, you know, put your finger on. And I mean, I big one that just came out recently was well, CRISPR, CRISPR technology, which now allows you to really look at the genome and at least in animal models and in the future in humans, although the first clinical trials was done in humans with CRISPR. Really, this idea of going to edit. So I told you we make mutations in an animal. Yeah well, can can we make mutations in human? With CRISPR, you can do this. And so you could actually go introduce a single mutation in in the genome of a cell and change it. And I know there are clinical trials now ongoing in in animal models with CRISPR technology trying to increase their lifespan. So will this become available in human in the future? Could be. Uh, Could be. It'll be be in a while. So CRISPR is really a big one. It really confers what one could call sort of... precision intervention in terms of rewiring a map targeting those
1: pathways exactly
0: much faster than making a drug Uh, making a drug is a long slow arduous process 20 years to generate a drug crispr right now you just need the sequence of of the gene and boom you know within a week someone in my lab can target it frankly we can do this in mice within you know three weeks we can we can do this wow so it, it is going to accelerate the way we map these pathways, the way we study and so on. So CRISPR has not only a credible therapeutic potential, also has an incredible uh, research tool. And equal, and probably even bigger, is artificial intelligence, it is going to be a huge tool for medicine and research. And, and the reason is we are right now generating uh, so much data using all of the th- technology that we have in genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, that there is not a single human who can actually integrate, process it, right. process it, and even you know identify patterns. And this is where AI comes in. It really allows us to manage these incredibly large data sets and to extract information and patterns that we, we cannot detect ourselves. And we see this as really changing the way we do research. Uh, so across the country and at the back, bioinformatics programs are, are becoming big because we, frankly, I've, I've argued that we generate more data than we can understand right now. Yeah, so yeah. We, all of this data is being pumped out and and people focus on a little aspect because they think that that's interesting, but we, we, we're not really equipped to really understand the full implications. And so one area that we really want to invest is the creation of a big bioinformatics program that is based on artificial intelligence to accelerate our work.
1: Right. Right. Sounds like you have your work cut out.
0: We do, we do <laughs> never a dull day.
1: <laughs> Hence the nice bottle of red wine, which I'm sure is also I've heard is good for longevity well uh, that's not scientific
0: ish no it's not scientific it is
1: in italy though it's definitely
0: (laughs) yes um i've argued with people that you know there is no really strong evidence that actually alcohol increases your lifespan or your health span there is sort of weak epidemiological data that suggests that people who have one to two drinks a day live longer but i've i've been told recently even though i didn't do the analysis by myself that that evidence is largely flawed because it was supported by the alcohol industry uh, shocker yes yeah, shocker <laughs> so uh, some, i have some colleagues who've argued alcohol is the new tobacco and uh, that mm. being said there is incredible value in having a, a glass of wine with friends and you yes. know social we are social animals the social aspects of your longevity is critical you know loneliness is one of the the strongest, yeah. uh, you know, early predictors of, of an early death, and so in some way, alcohol being a social lubricant, just works incredibly well at actually generating the, the warm, fuzzy feeling yeah. that you have when you are with friends. And I've I've told people if you if you stop drinking alcohol, so first never drink alcohol, thinking this is going to do me good and increase my lifespan and yeah. so actually when i realized this i stopped <laughs> i stopped drinking every day yeah. and i reserve my drinking from when i'm with friends when yeah. it's something really special like on a saturday evening and so on so i if someone were to you know reevaluate their um their relationship to alcohol i was stunned actually when i started wearing one of these uh, trackers oh yeah how much alcohol disrupted my sleep and mm. very deeply yes and the minute I stopped drinking every day uh I was sort of a one glass a, a day type yeah. of person I just saw a quality of sleep increasing and mm. my well-being increase. so I, I I guess my new recommendation is sort of don't drink every day drink you know when there's a, 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 a social reason, reason yeah. to actually to have fun with friends
1: Yeah, yeah yeah I'll take that advice <laughs> thank you very much
0: my pleasure good to see you
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Eric for sitting down and being so generous with his time. I want to thank you all for listening, as ever, for the ratings, reviews, telling your friends and neighbors, etc. I want to thank, of course, Producer Daisy for making the magic happen every week and again this week. And that is it. I will be writing a bit more about aging, I think, in the coming weeks, so do keep your eyes trained on the times.co.uk or pick up a paper you can also find me on twitter of course at Danny dannyfortson email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk that is it for me this week stay safe stay sane enjoy the summer and we'll talk to you very soon VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
0: VoiceOver on settings.
1: So you can navigate it just by listening.
0: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
1: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods